don't we care about what other people think of us? I know I do, okay? <laughs> and sometimes too much. I remember the very first sermon I preached when I was in seminary, going to school to be a pastor. First sermon I ever preached was in a classroom to a, to a group of my peers, and I had practiced, I had studied, I had worked on it for so much, so much time. And I got up there to preach this message, and I did. And right afterwards, one of the, my fellow students comes up to me and taps me on the shoulder and whispers in my ear, you have some toilet paper stuck to your shoe. Now, it wasn't toilet paper. It was a, a dryer sheet that had slipped out my pants and was hanging out the bottom. But, man, was I embarrassed. Can you imagine that, okay? Not only was the sermon terrible, guys. Okay, it was bad. But on top of that, I was so embarrassed to do that. Like, that's the nightmare that makes people quit, right? When those things happen to us, we care what other people think almost too much. And it can lead us to feel embarrassed or insecure, Right? But it can also lead us to change things about ourselves, whether it's the clothes we wear, the way we act, or decisions we make in life when we think about what other people think, right? Isn't that what we all do? Let's just be honest. There are studies now that show that kids as young as kindergarten care about their reputation. Okay, kids care about their reputation, teenagers and adults even more so. That's why Oprah Winfrey said that she has interviewed everybody from presidents to Beyonce. And she said everybody after the interview's over looks at her and says almost the same thing. Um, what do you think? How'd it go? Right? Everybody wants to know. They, they want to know. Like, it, was that okay? Everybody wants to know because we are insecure, aren't we? Let's just be honest. Sometimes we have an outward show that we have it all together, but inwardly we are worried about what other people think. What's their opinion of me? And what I had to learn on that very first sermon, I think it was like God's gift to me <laughs> for my first sermon I ever preached to have what they thought was toilet paper on my shoe the whole time, was that there's actually only one opinion that counts. There's only one opinion that ultimately matters. So our big idea today is going to be very simple. Only one opinion counts. Only one opinion counts, and that's what we're going to learn from the book of Daniel today. So if you have a Bible, open with me to Daniel chapter 5. If you have your phone, you can get that out too, and if you use the YouVersion Bible app, you can find our Rise Church Denver event and see all the scripture and notes that we're going to be covering today, and you can just save it right there on your phone, because only one opinion counts. So let's jump with me into Daniel chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Daniel 5.1 says this. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Okay, if you've been here for our Daniel series at all, you might be a little confused. Okay, haven't we been talking about the last four chapters, King Nebuchadnezzar? You're right. Okay, there's been a different king for the first four chapters, and this is the great King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, or actually officially he's Nebuchadnezzar II, but he was an incredible general, won a bunch of battles, and conquered most of the Middle East so that he was known as the, the king of kings of his day. He was the emperor ruling this great Babylonian empire. He had built an incredible city in Babylon, and people literally worshipped him as a god. He was at the top of his game, and that's who we saw the first four chapters. And he reigned for a number of decades, but actually, if we can jump ahead to this timeline, um, that you can see that we are now on to a new king. So if you look in this timeline, Nebuchadnezzar reigned for a number of decades, 
But then, of course, he, like everyone, died. And actually, the, the second king we're going to talk about is Belshazzar. So he's the king of chapter 5. And though you can't see in on this, I try to make it simple for you guys. There's actually um, four different kings in between those two. They had very short reigns, different kings that ruled the Babylon. But now we're up to Belshazzar, who was basically like the great-grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? And what's really interesting about Belshazzar is for generations, historians and archaeologists thought the Bible was wrong because the last king of Babylon, according to records at that time, was Nabonidus, a different king, until uh, archaeologists discovered this great piece of history that said Nabonidus was king, but he decided to retire into the desert for a decade, and he left his son, Belshazzar, in charge of Babylon. Interesting, right? And it actually explains something in the Bible that never made sense before that, because what we're going to see, Belshazzar is going to offer the third place in his kingdom to somebody. Well, why wouldn't he offer the second place? Well, he couldn't because he was second. His dad was actually the emperor. He was just like the acting king, okay? And what this tells us, and you can see this about Belshazzar, is like he didn't win any battles. He didn't build any great um, things like the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. He didn't accomplish anything. He was a trust fund kid, okay? He is the Prince Harry of the Bible. You guys with me on this, right? And as you can see, like, he is trying to prove himself and show how great he is. Even with this, he throws a huge party, a banquet for a thousand people. Have you guys ever tried to plan a party for a thousand people? That's a lot of people. How many people went to your wedding? Like, not a thousand, okay? Think of them. The food you'd have to plan, right? Think of the seating arrangement, Real interesting, like, they have actually excavated where the palace was, and they're like, a thousand people could not actually fit in, inside the throne room of King Belshazzar. Yeah. Okay, that's why you need, like, a seating chart to figure out who sits in the throne room, and you don't want to offend somebody, but they're the cousin. Let's put them at the kids' table. Like, it is a huge mess to plan a party for a thousand people. The caterers, how much wine they would need, and they would drink. And, and as we keep reading in verse 2, it says that while Belshazzar was drinking his wine... He gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from him, them. So there are a thousand people, his nobles, they're, they're the wealthiest people, the most powerful people, his generals, the important people, they're all invited, including his wives and his concubines. Now, a lot of parties in those days did not include the women, but he's trying to impress the girls too, okay? That's what he's doing. This is who... Belshazzar is. He wants to show how great he is, how much money he has. He's throwing it around. And, and to, to show off even more, he says, get those gold and silver goblets that were taken by my great-grandpa. Like He didn't win the battle. These are the trophies from somebody else's battle from decades prior. And he brings those out so they could drink from them, even though they were the cups that had been made holy to the temple of the one true God of Israel one true God that we worship, the God of the Bible, the God who created the universe. And here they are drinking from these gold and silver goblets to impress people. I was trying to think of like the modern equivalent, and there's like really nothing, but it would be like a little kid, he has some buddies over for a sleepover, they go in the attic and they're like, hey, check this out, opens the chest. This is great grandpa's pistol from World War II. He shot some Nazis with it, right? Like who cares? But the kid is like showing off with his great grandpa's trophies. You guys understand this? Can't you sense the insecurity coming out of Belshazzar? 
He's wanting to show off, show how rich he is, how powerful he is, how important he is, and even trying to take other people's accomplishments so he can look good. So he can look good in front of them. And it says in verse 4, it says in verse 4, as they drink the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Man, could you talk about more than like thumbing it? He's given a middle finger, right, to God? Like, look at us. How sacrilegious could you do be? Even if you're like, maybe that's a god and our gods are better, like, should we do something so sacrilegious, like drinking wine, pouring it out probably to these other gods of wood and stone and iron, not the one true living God. But he wants to look good in front of everybody. So they're doing it. Now, I really do think that he was trying to look good in the eyes of others, to show off, because he cared about their opinion more than the opinion of God. So Belshazzar is showing right now, and this is important because the Bible teaches us something different. If you're a follower of Jesus, there's only one opinion that counts. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, it says, You may brag about yourself, but the only approval that counts is the Lord's approval. You can brag about yourself, but there's only one person that matters. Who cares what other people think about you? Who cares about your trophies or your grandpa's trophies? how much money you have, what you've accomplished, the clothes you wear, but those are the very things that so many of us worry about. Do I look good at this Christmas party Do I, so I can fit in? Am I shiny enough? We, we make decisions about the clothes we wear, about the vehicles we drive, about the homes we live in. What are other people going to think about it? It might be our peers, might be friends, Sometimes it's our parents. Like some people live to to please their parents even decades after they've moved out of the house, right? What did mom think about it? Even if mom is dead, what did mom think about it? We we care about the opinions of other people and we make decisions. Sometimes people make a decision about who they'll marry or or the profession they'll go into just because what will other people think about it? This is what I want to do, but that's not prestigious. That's not important. These decisions we make that completely change our lives are more about other people's opinions than about the one that actually counts. I think we need to stop and look at ourselves. I think especially today, we work so hard to craft an image of ourselves, whether it's the photos we post on Instagram, even the profile, or like on LinkedIn, you've got to list all your accomplishments. And I've noticed that the people with the most accomplishments on LinkedIn like actually have done nothing. If you guys notice this, like those are the people I'm like, ooh, like, get a real job, okay? But like, man, they look good. They look like the second coming of Steve Jobs when you look at them online. Okay, this is what we do, though, isn't it? We want to impress other people. Or if Dave, as Dave Ramsey talks about, and I think it's good at this time of year, that we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't actually care about. Right? Isn't this what we do? We care so much about everybody else's opinion. And that's what Belshazzar did. But only one opinion counts. And let me tell you this. If you are a follower of Jesus, don't work hard at crafting your image because we are to be crafted into the image of Christ. You guys hear that? We're not supposed to be looking good ourselves. We're supposed to look like Jesus. That's what matters. Only one opinion counts. 
So God now at this point, allowing Babylon to reign for all these, these years, I think he finally just had enough. Is actually probably the amount of time he had prophesied as we'll get into a little bit later in, in the book of Daniel, that, that Babylon was going to reign over God's people. And he was just fed up enough that here is this king drinking from the goblets that have been sanctified to God, have been set aside holy in the temple. He's drinking from them, and God's just like, okay, it's time. And in verse 5, in the midst of this partying, this revelry, we read in verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace, meaning everyone could see it, right? It's brightened up. Everybody saw this hand writing in the plaster, and it says, the king watched the hand as it wrote. In verse 6, his face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking, right? The Aramaic actually says that he pooped his pants, I think. Like, that's how you could translate that. Here is this great king, terrified because a hand is writing on the wall. Now, this is interesting. We're going to learn that this is the hand of God. And if you've ever heard the phrase, the writing's on the wall, guess where it comes from? Like, now you know, okay? Just gave you an education, okay? (laughs) The writing's on the wall. God has written on the wall with his hand. Now, God doesn't actually have a physical hand. God is a spirit. But in order for us to understand him, sometimes he uses anthropomorphic, human-like language or human-like imagery so we can understand him. And the hand of God is a powerful thing throughout the Bible. It always talks about God like holding the entire universe in his hands. And the finger of God is mentioned here. He's writing with a finger, right? Jesus at one point casts out a demon, and he says, I cast out that demon by the finger of God. Meaning God is so powerful that he could crush you with his little finger, right? If we were going to translate into modern English. God has the power of the entire universe, and he's like, you're the king of the greatest empire of this day. Let me write you something. I have a memo for you. Think you're all that? And finally, this insecure king his nervousness is coming out, right? This is what happens with insecurity. He's going to be described as proud a little bit later, that humility and pride play a role in here. And it's true. It's true. But we saw Nebuchadnezzar two weeks ago that he was filled with pride, right? Because he was like, I actually have these accomplishments. I've won battles. I'm the greatest king. Look at what I've built. I'm incredible. There's a level of pride that's like that, right? It's just pure arrogance. There's also a pride that pretends in front of others when inside they're terrified. That's an insecurity. And it can be displayed the same way to a lot of observers. It's like the same thing. But I think a lot more of us understand what Belshazzar is like than we do what Nebuchadnezzar is like, right? We understand someone who wants to look good in front of others. We don't want to admit, I don't know what I'm doing. You walk in there and you you dress to impress, right? You fake it till you make it, don't we? That's the kind of insecurity uh, Belshazzar has, and now his knees are knocking. He is terrified. It's coming out because God has just written on the wall. So he follows the same script that his great-granddad did over and over and over again. And what does he do? You guys already know. He calls in the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians. Come in here and tell me what the writing on the wall means and interpret it for me. Read it and interpret it. 
He brings these wise men in, and I don't know why they're called wise men because they get it wrong every single time. But here they get brought in. These are the guys with multiple PhDs, right? They're all coming in to tell the king what this means, and none of them can do it. It says they can't read it or interpret it. They can't read it or interpret it. And I find that really fascinating because, as you're going to see, it's like four very simple words in Aramaic. Like, Bible scholars debate about, like, why couldn't they read it? Was it in a weird script? Was it, like, the letters tight together or whatever? No, I think the, these guys were terrified because of the news that it brought with it. If we tell the king now something bad, what's going to happen to us? So none of them can do it. Then it says the queen comes in, and this is probably the queen mother. This is his mom who's been around for a while and says, hey, there's this guy living in Babylon named Daniel. At this stage, at the youngest, Daniel would be 80 years old. So he was brought to Babylon probably as a 14-year-old, 15, 16. We don't know exactly how old, but probably as a teenager. He was castrated, forced to go to Babylon University, and forced to be a vegetarian. Man, the last one's maybe the worst, right? Okay. Things were bad for Daniel for decades, and yet he served faithfully. He advised these evil kings, and he helped them and served them for decades. And then he was put out to pasture <laughs> and forgotten about. Probably Belshazzar has reigned now for 10 years as this king, acting king of Babylon, and he didn't even know that Daniel, this, the greatest advisor to Nebuchadnezzar, was there. And he's like, okay, well, if he could help, let's bring him in. So they bring in Daniel before the king, and this is what the king offers to him. So jump down with me to verse 16. Belshazzar speaks to Daniel. He says, Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. This is what someone who, who wants to look good does for other people. I'll make you look good give you the best clothes, okay? This is an Armani-tailored suit, gold change that Mr. T and Flavor Flav would be jealous of. You're going to look good, and you're going to be the third highest position. I'm going to give you influence and power, right? And Daniel doesn't care, <laughs> right? Those other guys might be afraid to even read these three simple words that are written on the wall. Daniel doesn't care, and he rejects this offer. Verse 17 then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. What I love about Daniel is he comes in here as a sharp contrast to Belshazzar. Belshazzar is all about looking good in front of other people. He cares about it, what everybody else thinks of him. Daniel could care less. I don't need money. I don't need fancy clothes. I don't need a position of power. I will still do what's right. Because Daniel knew that only one opinion counts. God's opinion. So he's going to do what's right, even for this spoiled rich kid. I'll serve you if you're the king. I'll honor you because of your position. I don't need a position. I will do what's right. And that's why we love Daniel. Just his faithfulness, and he will do what's right. He doesn't care what happens. And that's what we've seen all along in this book of Daniel, right? It's whether it's Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They will do what's right no matter what happens. They'll get thrown into the fire. 
They'll be threatened with death, and they will still do what's right, even serving an evil empire. They'll do what's right, because only one opinion counts. So Daniel starts off, and um, he's like, hey, remember your great-granddad? You might have heard some story about Nebuchadnezzar. And he reminds him about what we saw in chapter 4, that Nebuchadnezzar had puffed himself up so much that God told him through a dream, like, you're going to go crazy unless you repent. He didn't repent for a whole year, and then he was turned into an animal, basically, right? His mind went crazy, and for a period of seven times, however long that was, he crawled along on the ground, right, eating grass and had the mind of an animal. This is what happened to the greatest king in the world at the time. Until he humbled himself, looked up to heaven, and acknowledged that there is one king above all kings. And God is the one true ruler of all. So, so Daniel reminds Belshazzar at this moment about that. He's like, hey, remember what your great granddad did? He humbled himself, but not you. Verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. You had an example. You were educated. Instead, verse 23, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from the temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. You made yourself important because you cared about what everybody else thought. But you didn't care about the one person who actually matters, the God of the universe. Daniel flat out tells him the truth about it. He's saying only one opinion counts, and you have chosen the wrong opinions. You have chosen poorly. You've chosen poorly. So then he begins to interpret, right? He's like, let me tell you what this writing means. So in verse 25, it says, This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. It's three words. You know, the first one occurs twice. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. And this is in Aramaic. And what's really interesting is that all three of these words are measurements of weight. These are weights. What's really cool is that archaeologists recently have uncovered these weights with labels on them for how much each of these weigh. Now, I'm going to give you guys, uh, like, this isn't 100% accurate. I just made it easier for us to understand. So mene would basically be like one pound. Tekel would be like one ounce. And parson would be two halves, so two half ounces. So... This is language of weights. So how much does each thing weigh? How much does it count? And I have something for you guys to see. Maybe you've seen something like this. These things like this used to be like in the supermarket where you could weigh, you know, your produce. You remember those days? Okay. Um, but this is a scale, right? You guys see this? A very simple scale. And merchants in those days, ooh, anything I need two hands for that. Okay, merchants in those days um, would not have had electronic scales, and there was not a super accurate currency, so they wouldn't know like what currency was worth what. There was no, like, you hold the dollar bill up to the light and see someone's face in there, right? So in order to know that people were paying the right amount of money with their coins is that they would have scales. 
So like in the scales, there would be these different types of weights, and you could put like the weights on the scale, right? So let's say with that. And then if somebody comes up to you and then gives you some coins, because people would shave their coins or use different you know, types of you know, gold or silver in order for it to worth less. So they'd say, hey, this is much, how much your coins need to weigh, and then you'd have to put your coins in there, right? Does that make sense? So every merchant had a set of weights, and they would have a scale where they were selling. And they would put their coins in there and say, okay, hopefully, yeah, we can balance that out a little bit, right? Okay, so these weights would determine what has value. Do you guys understand this? This is the theme of this entire chapter. What's really fascinating is we know the exact day that this happened on. This is a his, in the historical record, what day happened right here. We know what day it was. And what's really, interesting, what's really interesting is that there would have been a festival. This might have been the party that they were celebrating. There was a festival to the stars, okay? There was astrologers. We've talked about astrologers in this book before. And, and just like it is today, okay, there's you know, Capricorn, there's Aries, there's Leo, right? And there's different seasons of the year for the different constellations of the stars, right? And this happened to be in the month that celebrated the constellation of the scales. Fascinating. This may have been the festival that they were celebrating. So this is the theme running throughout it. And God's like, oh, you guys are worshiping the scales right now? Let's get out some weights and see what really counts. What's even more interesting is that there's a word play here. So yes, these three words, and the way Daniel says them is they are these three different weights. But then he says, he interprets them. There's a word play here. It's just like a word play in English. We've been trying to teach McKinley about it. She's in kindergarten. Like, okay, there's the word trunk. Like, do you look in the trunk of the car, the trunk of the tree, or the trunk of the elephant, right? One word can mean multiple different things. And the same thing is true here in Aramaic because the word mene means numbered. Numbered. That's what that word can also mean. It's a weight, but it also means something is numbered. And Daniel interprets what that word means. Appearing twice, he says, God has numbered the days of your reign. God is telling you, King Belshazzar, I don't care how important you think you are and how powerful and that you will live forever, which was the common way people address the emperor, and we've seen it throughout the book. May he live forever, right? Daniel doesn't say that in this chapter. He says, actually, your days are numbered. You're not going to live forever. You will die. And this is an important thing for us. There's only one opinion that matters because you will die. And everyone else around you will die. And there's only one person that's going to count on the other side of the grave. Only one person. This is learning wisdom that Belshazzar never learned. Moses teaches us this in, in Psalm chapter 90. In Psalm 90, 12, Moses says, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. If you're wise, you will think about the fact that there is a, um, a finite number of days that you will live in this life. You won't live forever. And I think this is important because Nebuchadnezzar was told to repent, basically. And he waited a year before he was knocked down, given seven more times, and then he could repent. Belshazzar doesn't get that long. Everybody has a different number of the days, and guess what? None of us know the count of those days. We don't. We don't know if today will be our last or we will live into our hundreds. None of us do. We just did a funeral here a couple weeks ago. Nobody knows the day or the hour that you will leave this plane. We don't. 
Our days are numbered, and we should live accordingly. If you knew you only had a few days or a few day, weeks left to live, how would you live? I think it'd be different, right? I think that there are decisions we would all make, choices we would change, and we would do things differently. You wouldn't care what other people think of you if you knew you only had a few days left to live. And I think that's important words of wisdom for us today. What would you do differently? I've told this story before, but right at the beginning of the pandemic, when we went online only, there was a man, um, I'll call him Adam, and Adam started joining us online every week. He was a single guy, and he kind of just freaked out at the beginning of the pandemic, started watching online. And though he had grown up in church, he had wandered away from it for a long time. He joined us online, accepted Christ again. He reached out to me, and we were able to talk on the phone. And it was a great conversation. He was growing in his faith. He was pouring in. But then, just about two weeks after that, he died unexpectedly of a heart attack. And I didn't know about it. You know, I, I couldn't see any of you guys. But his mom called me up. And she said, I had to call you because he's been talking so much about this church that he loves that he found. And when I went to his apartment, on the whiteboard, he had written down your name and number. So I just had to call you and tell you what happened to him. And I am so grateful that God gave him the opportunity right then, right? That at the end of his life, he had an opportunity to come back to God, to receive healing and forgiveness and eternal life. And I know right now he's in heaven. He's probably smiling as he's looking down on us. None of us know when our life will end. And there's some of you that need to do some work with God. There's some changes you need to make about your life that you've been waiting, you've been putting off and saying, maybe years from now, maybe when life calms down, maybe when I get married, maybe when I have kids, maybe when the kids are out of the house, maybe when I'm retired, maybe you, we keep always having a maybe and we push it off to later, right? We don't know if we're going to have a later. Our days are numbered. If God is telling you to do something, if he's pulling you to himself, listen and do it. Your days are numbered, and there's only one opinion that counts. There's only one opinion that counts. So Daniel gives that first word in interpretation to Belshazzar, and then he gives the second one, tekel. This word also means weighed, okay? Getting the theme here? Weighed. And he interprets it to mean, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. You've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Your life has been weighed on these scales. And you've been found wanting. See, the truth of the Bible is that God judges every single one of us. We don't like to talk about judgment, but it's all over the Bible. Old Testament and New. Every single one of us will go before the judgment seat of Christ at the end. And we will have to give an account for our life. And what it tells us in places like Proverbs 21.2, that a person may think their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. This is even more than just the actions we do, because you might do the right thing with the wrong motives. God sees our hearts. Maybe you even did the right thing just to impress somebody else, right? Because you cared about their opinion. But are we really doing it for God? And if we think about it that like that, we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, every single one of us. And we will go before the judgment seat, and, and God will say, okay, which way is it going to be weighed? And for Belshazzar, Daniel's just like, I'm just, you know, giving you the cliff notes, okay? Spoiler alert, 
you've been found wanting. You have done, done a good enough. Your heart is not good. And I say this because everybody's like, well, I got a good heart. Okay, even murderers' moms are like, oh, but he was such a good kid, great heart. Like, seriously, every, every time there's a murderer, that's what the mom says. Oh, no, just a good heart, just did something bad. Like, no, he's a murderer. Okay, every one of us has a sinful heart. We'll have a sinful heart. And the only opinion that counts is God's. A couple of words that Jesus teaches very similar to this idea about whose opinion matters. In Luke chapter 16, we, we looked at this passage last summer. Jesus said to them, to, to the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were the upright people who everybody looked to and thought they were great. He says, you make yourselves look good in front of people. But God knows what is really in your hearts. What people think is important is worth nothing to God. It's not about looks. It's not about impressing other people. It's about what God thinks is important. And that's why I think we need to follow in the way of Paul, like he says in Galatians chapter 1. Obviously, he says, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but of God. If pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. If we follow Jesus, we stand with him. And there will be people who dislike us, and Jesus promises even hate us. I heard an interview this week with Patrick Lencioni, who's an incredible businessman, um, he's a New York Times bestseller, and he's one of the best business consultants out there. And in this interview, he, he's really come to faith over the last few years. And he said, you know, when I walk into a boardroom or I go serve a, a company, I know, he says, if they knew what I truly believed, I would not be welcomed there. He would, I wouldn't be liked. I might even be hated. And I think that's true. He recognizes it. He still goes into the serve just like Daniel does, right? That's what we do in our world. We still serve. We still give our best, always. But we know as followers of Jesus, people will weigh us and they'll think we're wanting and we have to decide, will I care more about what they think or what God thinks? I think that's the way we have to decide. Which opinion counts more? Because a lot of people are like, well, I like God. I, I want to do what he says. But people are, are, are telling me to do this. My boss wants me to do this. So, so I guess I'm just going to do it, right? Or, or like, hey, you know, I know God says this is a sin, but the world says it's actually a good thing. Whose opinion weighs more for me? And I think we have to decide whose opinion counts. Because we will stand before the judgment seat and our hearts will be weighed. We'll be found faithful to God, or are we just trying to win the approval of other people? For King Belshazzar, he was found wanting. And then Daniel gives him the third and final word of judgment here. This third interpretation of the word parson, which means divided. Right? It's two halves. It's divided. And he says, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. See, Babylon was the greatest empire, but they didn't think about the fact that the Medes, the Medo, and the Persians would come together to form one even greater empire that will come and destroy the Babylonians. And that's exactly what happened. If you keep reading in verse uh, 29, it says, Then Belshazzar's command, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple, a gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Oh, you're important. Like, he's still like thinking all about the looks, isn't he? And he does nothing. I think this is important. He does nothing to change his life, to humble himself or repent. None of that. And that's why it says in verse 30, that very night, 
Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is really interesting because this is historical. Okay, I want you guys to see this on a map so you guys can understand what's going on here. So the Babylonian Empire, which had power over all the Middle East, but then the Medes and the Persians combined to form another empire. And if you look at this next slide, you'll see that that's uh, modern-day Iraq and modern-day Iran. It's like they keep you know, getting in trouble with each other, right? It's almost like the present day. But the, the Medes and the Persians combined to form an even stronger force, and they were already marching against Babylon. We have historical record of this. Herodotus and a few other Greek historians recorded, and it's recorded in like six or seven other places in history. And they were marching in. What is crazy about this whole day is that the day before this party, the Medo-Persian Empire had just taken a big um, city just north of Babylon. They had conquered it in a great siege, won the battle. The day before this party. Now, history tells us this party actually happened. That they were partying on the night. And this is a war's happening. Your city just got conquered and they're partying. Now we don't know why, but I wonder if it's because they thought our walls are too strong. We're the greatest empire on the planet, so we can party because everything else is going on around us. And what history tells us is that these walls were super high. They were well defended. And what the Medo-Persian Empire did was they drained the river and marched right under the wall came in, won the battle, killed Belshazzar without a fight. Isn't that crazy? It's history. And it's what God said is going to happen, and yet nothing changed with Belshazzar. He was told this point blank, don't you wish you could have writing on the wall? A miracle that God could speak to you? But let me tell you, people get that, and they still don't turn to God. I have seen people that have had near-death experiences, people die in their lives, God shows up in some supernatural way, and they still don't listen. I've counseled people. I'm like, what more do you need? Are you going to listen to God? But people don't because they care more about what other people think than what God thinks. And for Belshazzar, it was tragic. And I'm hoping and praying that for you, it won't be. That this can be an example for us to learn from what not to do. That we can be like Daniel and not like Belshazzar. Because we know that there is a king above all kings. You know what's really cool we're celebrating here at Christmas? Is that when Jesus was born, do you know who, you know who came to worship him? The Magi. Sometimes called the three kings, right? There's not actually three of them and they weren't actually kings. But it does say that they're Magi from the east. Do you know where the east was from Jerusalem? Babylon. The Magi were actually the technical term that the Persian Empire used for the wise men and astrologers the Magi, and they are coming now to worship the newborn king. Isn't that crazy? Belshazzar was taken out. Nebuchadnezzar was taken out. Every single king was taken out because they will come and they will kneel before the king of kings. There is no one too important to come and bow before Jesus at all. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, that the king of kings was born. And what's amazing is that he left it all to serve us, like Daniel, faithfully. And when other people declared him to be guilty, though he was innocent, he was executed. Jesus was perfect. He deserved reward. He, unlike the rest of us who sin and sin and sin and will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and deserve condemnation, Jesus did everything right and was perfect. And yet he still died. 
But the amazing thing, the good news of Jesus Christ is that every single one of us sin. Every single one of us have hearts that are sinful in thought, word, and deed. And yet, because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, if we accept his gift of eternal life, God will look at us and say, innocent, justified, well done, good and faithful servant, because we have trusted in the blood of Jesus Christ. I think that's the good news that Belshazzar points forward to. So I want you to hear that good news today because some of you I need to make some decisions. Your days are numbered. What do you need to change about your life? Or maybe you need to get right with God today. Quit putting it off till later, till you're more mature. There's only one opinion that counts. Who cares what other people think? Let's live for an audience of one. Let's live for Jesus because he's the one who will love us and accept us no matter what, forgive us. And then when we stand before the judgment seat, we will live forever with him. So I want to give you guys an opportunity to respond right now. Let's, let's bow our heads together. Let's bow our heads. Close your eyes if you're able. And I just want to ask you first. I want to give, I'll give an opportunity for people to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior for this time. But, but there's others in here. Maybe you're already a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're not. But you know God is speaking to you today. This was a hand-on-the-wall moment for you. And you know there's something to change. There's something you've got to do to get right with God. And if that's you, I want you to put your hand in the air. I'm just going to say a prayer of blessing for those right now. So put your hand in the air if I can be praying for you. Lord God, I pray for those who are saying, yes, there is something I need to change. My days are numbered. Lord God, I pray that you give them the courage to do it. Give them your Holy Spirit so they will walk in the right way. They will walk with Jesus even when it's hard. Even when everyone else against them has a different opinion, but Lord, they will listen to you and they will listen for your voice. Give them the courage and the strength to do what you have called them to today. You can put your hands down. If you're here though, and you're realizing God is telling you that you need to accept his gift of eternal life, that without Jesus, you would be condemned on the last day, that you would be weighed and found wanting. And it's time to accept his gift of forgiveness and eternal life. That's all you have to do, accept it. If you uh, call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Saved, And that's what you need to do today. So I'm gonna give you an opportunity to respond with a simple prayer. If you're already a follower of Jesus, please repeat it after me. And for others of you, you need to pray this for the first time. So please repeat after me. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Save me. Forgive me. In faith, I declare, Jesus is king. Fill me with your spirit. Give me the gift of eternal life. Help me to follow you and only care about your opinion. Now with eyes closed, if you said that prayer for the first time, I want to celebrate with you. We love when people come to faith in Jesus. So could you put your hand in the air on the count of three? One, two, three. Put your hand in the air. Praise God. We're going to celebrate with you. Could we celebrate together right now? Lord Jesus, we are so glad for those who declare faith in you, who follow you. Lord, because we know that you give the gift of forgiveness, the gift of eternal life. And you see Jesus when you look at us. Because he was the perfect son when we all failed. And Lord Jesus, because of that, we worship you, we celebrate you, and we want to declare that you are good. You're the opinion that counts. And I pray this in Jesus' name.